Welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I am talking about movies on my other podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about A Discovery of Witches, I'm podcasting about Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. Each week, we'll recap the episode spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend, Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here. But don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 4 was directed by Alice Troughton and written by Kate Brooke and Tom Farrelly. It's the halfway point of the season. Yeah, there's been a lot of build-up to this point, and I think from here on out, we've got a lot of action coming. Yes. It's a roller coaster. I think the whole show is kind of a roller coaster because it's so quick. Yeah, that is true. I mean, because it's a lot of information to fit in just eight episodes, and they do it pretty well. They do. I hope we have more episodes for season two. Did they not announce how many episodes would be in season two when they announced it was renewed? No. Yeah, I should know that since I'm podcasting about it, but I don't, so. (laughs) We honestly don't have much information about season two, so. Bummer. But let's, let's dive into it. Yes, so in episode four, there is, again, no cold open. We jump right into our opening scenes with Matthew's voiceover. Mm-hmm. And then we have possibly my favorite line in the episode right away. Is your mother expecting us? And Matthew just says, Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no other information. Immediately reverting to a teenager. Yes. But then we get to meet Matthew's mother, Isabeau, and I love Isabeau. I honestly think over the course of the entire trilogy, I think she's my favorite character. Or probably second favorite after one that we haven't met yet, who we won't meet until season two. Right. I think Lindsay Duncan is perfect here. I I love how they wrote it so that Isabeau does not speak a single word in the entire introduction. And Matthew's mm-hmm. just like, la-di-da-di-da, we're all here and everything's fine. <laughs> it's great. I also really like Lindsay Duncan. I think she's great. She plays Isabeau fabulously. She gets her her fierceness and then later on her warmth as well. I don't know how I feel about the age that they cast her. I'm kind of conflicted because I never pictured Isabeau that old or that old looking because they're, they're vampires. She can be whatever age they want her to be. Right. And while I like the opportunity to see older, fabulous actresses on screen being fierce and fabulous. I think I would have liked an interesting dynamic where maybe Isabeau didn't necessarily look older than Matthew. And I I, I don't know. And it calls into question some casting that they're going to do for season two and all those mm. sorts. She's just not at all how I pictured her. I love her. She has a great performance. I don't think I would change it now that I've seen it, but it's just not at all what I was expecting. That makes total sense. I think just from the perspective of recognizing that she's playing Matthew's mother, mm-hmm. and when you look at them, you get a sense of mother-son because they look like human mother and son. It hasn't bothered me. I didn't. It didn't make me stop and think, oh, well, she probably wasn't that old when she was turned into a vampire, so she wouldn't look that old. Do we well, know guess- how old she was? When Did we ever get her story? I know we don't in season one of the show but in the books did we ever get her story 
we get her story, but I don't think we ever learn how old she was when she was a human. Or at the very least, we get the story of how she met Philippe. I genuinely don't remember if she was... No, I think she was already a vampire during that. Okay, so I just looked it up on the All Souls Trilogy wiki, and she was described as looking slightly younger than her son. So they definitely went out of their way to cast Lindsay Duncan in this role. Yeah, and again, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. She's great. She looks fabulous, and you know, I, I genuinely do like the opportunity for older women who are still fabulous actresses to get good work, right? Because that is because Hollywood is stupid and blah 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 blah. Yeah, but I don't think that's why they cast her. I think they cast her to play it safe. You know what I mean? The looks wise to not have right. somebody who's like twenty or something, ha- and have Matthew Good call them mom. You know, I think I'm okay with that, though, because Lindsay Duncan brings it. I mean, she personifies Isabeau in a way that I wasn't sure how they were going to do on screen, because Isabeau is this perfect combination of ice cold, yet mm-hmm. also fiercely protective. And I think is Lindsay Duncan can pull that off, as we've seen in this episode alone. I agree. Great. Now, like, like I said, now that I've seen her, I wouldn't change it. Right. It just wasn't the decision I would have made. It would be interesting to know if, when they were casting, if they looked at younger people, too, and they just decided that Lindsay Duncan was the best. Mm-hmm. That I'd be 100% cool with. Yeah. Curious. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would definitely be interested to know as well. But I think Lindsay Duncan definitely pulls off the absolute savagery of Isabeau. She does, yes. I mean, one of my favorite lines, I'm going to go ahead and do it here because we're talking mm-hmm. about it, is when when she finally does speak to Diana and Matthew after they've appeared, it's to insult Diana. And, and she says something in um, Occitan, which is a very old French dialect. Encantada. She's pleased to meet you. Of course, she speaks only English and new French. Modern warm bloods is so poorly educated. So savage, and I love it. Okay, I do love that line, and I love that whole situation. I do think, especially since, like, we've already had Diana be one of the youngest ever to get tenure at Yale, and, like, she's obviously a very smart person mm-hmm. and very educated, so I, it's a great line. And exactly, exactly the insult to hurt Diana. Yes, exactly. So poorly educated. That being said, I think anybody with a modicum of understanding of the romance languages could have worked out. I think she says encantata or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think you can figure it out. <laughs> like, Diana probably knows a bunch of old languages, or at least a little bit of them. Yeah. I think she could have worked it out. Well, and she may have. We weren't giving the opportunity to see it because Matthew just translated for her. And that's immediately when we get Isabeau's insult. And then we cut away. Yeah, that that's true. That's true. I, I did want to talk about the castle. Um, Sator is so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I would really like a castle to live in. Um, I did look it up to see if this was a real place, and it turns out there is a hotel in France called um, Chateau de Citeur, which you can stay in for around $200 a night, but it is not related to this one. This one is modeled off of an older 14th century castle that actually does exist, but she completely made up this house 
but I like it a lot. Did you by any chance find out where they filmed it? Um, it was filmed in the castle of Monsalici, located in the Veneto region of Italy. Okay. However, uh, the towers and many elements were added using CGI. Oh, nice. Then that was one of their good special effects, because I didn't even realize the towers were CGI. Neither did I. I do also, in this bit, love when um, <laughs> Matthew says, no, she'll be staying in my tower. I want a tower. Can I have my own yeah. tower? I, it's just so indicative of, of them, you know, the Declaremonts. My tower. Yeah. Then we cut back to Oxford. And I actually really love this scene because it's just, initially, it's just an overhead shot of a street where there are a lot of people, but we see one particular man walk out of a building down the street. All we see is his back. We don't see his front. We can't hear him talking. And I immediately knew, hey, that's Marcus. Just because he has such a distinctive way about him and his hair is this kind of like unruly thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but... I really enjoyed that I could just, like, look at this crowd of people and say, oh, there's Marcus. I honestly don't remember if I could or not. Well, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just you. And then we get Marcus going into Matthew's rooms while he's on the phone with Miriam, and we discover Juliet is in there waiting for Matthew. Yeah. I really like this scene. I, I like that you see that Marcus and Juliet know each other, so we know that she was at least a little bit involved with Matthew's life. Mm-hmm. And... That Marcus doesn't doesn't care for Juliet. Neither does Miriam, as we discover when she shows up. Yeah. They clearly have a fierce loyalty to Matthew. And as soon as there was a whiff of Juliet, both of them like stand up to her, try to keep her away from Matthew. Although I think there's a lot of cattiness in the dialogue here, and it kind of speaks volumes to the entire vampire dynamic, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Juliet gets a dig in at Marcus when she says, um, when Miriam shows up, she says, you can't do anything on your own, can you? You always need someone to take care of you. That is very indicative of Marcus and Juliet's specific past together. True. But I think it, it reminds me of in episode one, when we first met Marcus, you called Marcus a puppy, like always a true. puppy. And, and so I feel like this is just some more of that characterization of, yeah. of Marcus is very young. I mean, he's a vampire who's centuries old, but comparatively to everybody else, he is still very young. Yeah, I think he's the youngest vampire we meet in this series, like in the whole series. Oh, that's a possibility. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting that they're finding ways to just kind of show us this dynamic without being super specific about it if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then we go into yet another burn, and this one is from Miriam, and I love it. When she's walking out, she tells Juliet, Eternity's a long time to be chasing a man who doesn't want you, Juliet. That one is so good, because it is a good burn, but it's also like, like maybe she's just trying to look out for her, you know, like give her some good advice. You know, like, Matthew doesn't want you. You're yeah. gonna live forever. Right. Maybe choose a new obsession. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think I think it's definitely a, a double-edged sword a little bit yeah. of protecting Matthew, but also trying to be helpful to Juliet, who she clearly does not like. Yeah. Make her face some harsh truths. Yeah. I can't really say much else about Juliet without intense spoilers. That's okay. I do think it's interesting that I don't think Marcus or Miriam mentioned this encounter to Matthew. Oh, you're right. But I don't think I would either, because, I mean... if. 
if they had, they would be doing what Juliet wanted them to do. Because Juliet walked out and said, do tell Matthew I called. That's true. Um, And so I think they want to keep Matthew and Juliet separated and apart. I I think it also, from a plot perspective, sets up some stuff that happens later in the season. If they had told Matthew, he would have been maybe looking for things or at the very least aware that there were some things that were possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just interesting point that they don't tell Matthew. And then we're back at Septor's and... Matthew is trying to get in a locked door to Philippe's office, and we see Isabeau saying that she doesn't want that door unlocked while Diana's there, and Matthew just requests that he would like the office to work in, and this makes no sense to me, other than, like, I get it as a plot device to set up that Philippe is newly-ish for a vampire dead, and that it's still very much like a thing that everyone there is dealing with, and it sort of sets up the whole witch's conflict, and that sort of thing. But just, I don't know, in reality, it doesn't make sense. Matthew would have his own office. He has a tower. He does. But I also see Matthew as being a very sentimental sort. And so this works for me. I I think it helps set up the impact that Philippe had in his life. And Matthew working in his office is a way for him to continue to be close to his father. I guess. I'm very sentimental. And so things like that tend to work for me. Okay. And at the end of the conversation... Uh, I think Matthew says something like, nobody in here, or no, he wouldn't say that. I forget what exactly Matthew says, but then Isabeau says, her kind killed Philippe, nobody else. And this is, spoilers in here, but this is just such a great line. I love how Lindsay Duncan delivers it. I love how Matthew takes it. It's so good. We cannot discuss any more of it, but it's just, it's just delivered fabulously. It is a good line. And, and... Yeah, we can talk about that at the end of the episode. Uh, Then we cut to Diana dreaming again. And I like your note says dead mom has replaced spiders. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't actually see spider webs in this dream. We we see her dead mom with the, you know, gaping head wound. Uh, But we also see Diana still covered in spider webs. Yes. And I, I made a note that at first when I was watching this, I was like, wow, Matthew's tower is all in blue, too. The walls are blue. The sheets are blue. Everything Diana does is in blue. But then she woke up and I realized that her dreams are always set in the same place and they're always in her rooms in Oxford. I don't know if that has any significance or if it's just that we dream the familiar, but I thought that was interesting. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Like, I didn't I didn't notice that the dream was still in Oxford. Yeah, yeah interesting and then we cut to the phone call between sarah and m and diana and there was something about this that bothered me and it looks like it it is an actual thing i'm just not internationally traveled enough to understand that this is a thing um when they get on the phone sarah immediately says your ringtones changed where are you is that really a thing that when you call people the the way the phone rings sounds differently depending on where they are yeah, different countries have different, like, tones that happen, I guess. I only know this because I spent six months in England in 2003 before, like, cell phones and texting were great at long distance or did long distance without exorbitant prices. Mm-hmm. So we had to use landlines to call home and that sort of thing. And okay. also we still called each other instead of texting each other. Right. That makes sense. But they were both on cell phones and I... It would still affect uh, the cell phones if you're in different countries. I think it's just that now people don't really 
Like if you're traveling, you don't call people really. You Skype or you text or that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. All right. So, yeah. If you internationally traveled recently, you probably wouldn't even notice. But back in the day, you would. Fair enough. All right. Uh, this is also the conversation where we learn that Isabeau is a quote-unquote witch killer. And Sarah is absolutely panicked that Diana is staying in her house. Yeah, so it is immediately apparent that Sarah's heard of Isabeau de Clermont with, with infamy, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think she said that she took out entire covens in South America. Yeah. I, I don't know that, that Sarah knew why. I think Sarah believes that she just kills witches for the sport of it. Though we have recently discovered that she has a thing against witches because of Philippe. So trying to put two and two together there. Uh, and that she killed those witches in the 50s and 60s. Right. So it's not like she was going on a 100-year witch-killing spree. Right. Um, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure that, that someone like Sarah would know that. She wouldn't know the reason behind it. All she would know is that this woman killed lots of witches during this time period. So Right. But it, it's Sarah that mentions it was in the 50s and 60s. Right. That, that's, that was my point. Sorry. And then we're with the congregation on the island, whose name I've forgotten. And we meet another de Clermont. Yay, Baldwin. Baldwin. Who I despise Baldwin in the book. I yeah. actually really like him here. At this point, I'm rather impartial to him. That's true. I am probably putting like my feelings of later episodes onto it here. In this episode, he comes across as somebody who has an intense desire to be in control. Yeah. But also wants to just do what the congregation is supposed to do. I do think you get a little bit of his, like, like when Matthew's mentioned later, you get a little bit of, like, eye-rolling. Like, oh, yeah. what has Matthew done now? Yeah. And I, I like that dynamic. Mm-hmm. But, yes, we get Baldwin and we get Agatha being badass, as always. And I love how she is just never cowed by these dangerous vampires. She will always stand up to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fabulous. Yeah, didn't she have some sort of line about how the vampires have always put a white male on the congregation? Yes, for She's like the like last eight hundred years or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Um, so at this point, we know more about the congregation than we've ever known before, but we still don't know everybody on the congregation. We know that it's made up of nine members, three from each species. We know all three of the vampires, Gerbert, Domenico, and Baldwin. We know that Peter and Satu are two of the witches, but we don't know the third person's name yet, although we obviously see them in this episode. Mm-hmm. And we see all three demons, but we only know Agatha's name. Yes. Hamish is not on the congregation. Correct. Hamish is not on the congregation. He is just another demon that we have met. We also learn that the congregation is very deeply steeped in ritual. Um, that the meeting room that Satu wanted to go into and, and was not allowed to in the last episode, we find out it's locked and can only be opened with the keys that mm-hmm. it actually takes nine keys. Every member of the congregation has a key and then the three keys of each species come together to form a single key. And then all three of those keys have to be used at the same time to unlock the door. That's a lot of secrecy and shit. It's, I like it. Well, visually anyways, I like it better than how it was in the book. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I just think it's describing it sounds like a lot, but watching it was nice. And it's, it's really nice to get the sense of, wow, this, this organization really is centuries old and they are clinging to where they came from. Yes. And then we go back to Seturs. 
And we see Matthew investigating uh, the pictures of Diana's parents sitting at a small, tiny desk in this office beside what is very clearly a large, more comfortable desk with a better chair after the whole convincing Isabeau to let him, whatever, it's fine. Right. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Just sit in your dad's desk, dude. (laughs) But we can tell that he comes to a upsetting realization. Yes. And then we very quickly go back to the congregation. And Knox tells it, I think it's here that Knox tells everybody that Matthew de Claremont has abducted a witch. Yes. And you can see Baldwin being like, oh, shit, my stupid brother. It's interesting because you get the look between Gerbert and Domenico, which is kind of one of surprise yet also relief because Mm -hmm. they didn't know that this was going to happen. But they were just talking about how they should do this very same thing. Mm hmm. And now all of a sudden they don't have to because the witches have done it. Yeah. So I guess we get a feeling that everybody is trying, well, everybody except the demons, who sadly don't really know what's going on, or at least nobody thinks they know what's going on, conspiring against the Declaremonts. Yes. So then we cut back to Sitters, and Matthew and Diana are talking outside of Philippe's office, and Matthew has tucked his t-shirt into his jeans, and I hate it. It's bad. Who allowed that to happen on television? You are absolutely right. It's terrible. It's awful. And later you get this full body shot of Matthew wearing the t-shirt tucked into the jeans with these knee-high boots over the jeans. It would have been fine if he just had his sweater on over it. Then we couldn't see it. Right. I think it's because we are going to have a horseback riding scene coming up soon. And I think it's part of that outfit. And I don't know, maybe he's just being more comfortable because he's still in the house. I'm trying to give him a pass here, but I agree with you. It's an absolute utter travesty. It's terrible. It's terrible. And he, like every other scene in this whole series, he looks great. They've done such a good job with his clothes and everything. Fabulous. But, ugh. That is just not a flattering look on anybody, Matthew. No, it is absolutely not. But we do get a pretty great conversation between Diana and Matthew here. But it's so hard to pay any attention to it. So this is where Diana has put two and two together. She has figured out, based on the conversation she previously had with Matthew and what she heard from Sarah, that it was witches who killed Philippe. And so she asks Matthew about it, and he tries to brush it off, and he tells her that it has nothing to do with her. And Diana is so compassionate and so understanding about Isabeau, and she responds, for her, it does. And it just makes me love Diana so much. Mm Mm-hmm. It is a good scene. Except for the t-shirt tucked in the jeans, I get it. (laughs) It's overplayed by that, but yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And then we head back to Oxford with uh, Marcus and Miriam in the lab. And we're going to get into some family politics discussion here. But first, let's check in with Anya and her lab. So this week, I wanted to talk a little bit more about genetic markers and what they can tell us about people's genetics. Um, We talked about it a little bit in episode two, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth in it. Uh, You probably know that you get uh, half of your DNA from your mom and half of your DNA from your dad. So you have a pair of each chromosome and one came from your mom and one came from your dad, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So, So that's fairly straightforward. So it gets a little bit more complicated when we think about how you pass those chromosomes on to your kids, because you don't 
simply give them a chromosome that matches the one you got from your mom or the one you got from your dad. But it's not just like a sort of perfect mix of them either. Um, so I tried to come up with a metaphor. The way that I wanted to describe it is is basically it's like sandwiches. <laughs> so like you ima can imagine, um, you know, you get like a sub sandwich. And so that's the chromosome. Um, and maybe you got like a meatball sub and a turkey sub. And so the meatball one is the chromosome you got from your mom. The turkey sub is the chromosome you got from your dad. And so instead of giving your children a complete sub sandwich, what you do is you actually cut them both in half and then sort of mix and match. So when you give your chromosome to your children, you might have one third of a meatball sub and two thirds of a turkey sub or vice versa. And so these cuts in the chromosomes are called crossovers. And so on average, there's about two to three crossovers per chromosome. Um, and so the effect that this has is that the DNA that we inherit is inherited in large chunks. It's not just sort of like all blended together. And so knowing this is really important for thinking about how markers function and how we can use them to determine what traits people have. Is this all making sense so far? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So basically, markers are sequences of DNA that don't necessarily cause a certain trait, but they're associated with it. And the reason mm -hmm. why they're associated with traits is because, because we're inheriting DNA in these large chunks on chromosomes. So every mutation, right, at some point, it's brand new. It mm -hmm. uh, happens to occur on a single chromosome in a single individual. And when that happens, it's in a section of the chromosome, and it's next to all of these random differences that are only on that chromosome and not on all of the other chromosomes that everyone else has. And so most of these random differences don't do anything. They're just, they're what we call silent. They're just changes that are unique, but, you know, don't really do anything. And because we inherit DNA in these big chunks, the random changes that are next to the mutation that matters will be inherited with that mutation. And so a marker is just something that happened to be next to that mutation when it first occurred. And it hasn't, that association between the marker and the mutation that matters hasn't been broken up. Um, so over time, as the mutation spreads, the association between the mutation that matters and all of those random markers will break down. But it takes a long time for that to happen because there's only, you know, two or three crossovers per generation, and the chance of that crossover happening in between the mutation and the marker is very small in any given generation. So is it fair to say that if Marcus is having trouble siring vampires, he would have inherited that from Matthew? Yes, probably. At least, well, so I should say in my interpretation, yes, absolutely. So I don't, it's not clear to me what exactly Deborah Harkness is doing, but assuming that vampires have their own DNA that's distinct from the human DNA, mm -hmm. 
then yes, that would be true. It was actually not clear to me, based on the TV show, if the markers that Miriam is looking for in Marcus's DNA are in his human DNA or in his vampire DNA. Right. And, and so that's actually a really interesting question, right? Because if vampires, if, you know, like, the genes for vampirism are separate from human genes, then the inheritance would work differently than, you know, if it's just sort of a mystical presence setting up shop in human DNA, right? Because then the genes that Marcus has are completely unrelated to Matthew. Right. You know, they... They basically come from his human parents instead. And so that's why markers aren't always a perfect indication of whether something, whether you have a certain trait or not, or that's one of the reasons why. Um, And that's why, you know, 23andMe was having some legal issues a while back because, you know, the government wasn't sure if they were being responsible enough in the way that they were handing out information, right? So if if you get your DNA sequenced by 23andMe and you get back the report, you know, it'll tell you, you have this marker that means you have, you know, a 40% better chance of having, you know, some disease or something. That means that basically what they've done is looked at millions of people and done the statistics to show that people that have this marker are 40% more likely to have some trait than people who don't have the marker. But the marker does not cause the trait. And so it's possible that you have that marker that originated with whatever mutation is causing the trait, but you don't have the mutation itself. Right. Yeah. And so the way that these associations are made between markers and certain traits, um, like, say, not being able to successfully sire a vampire baby Mm -hmm. or, you know, being able to create witch water. Um, you you need right. a lot of statistical power in order to make those associations. So um, for these typical studies that they use to match markers with different conditions, they typically use thousands or hundreds of people and millions of different markers. That is not a job that I would like to have. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, it's mostly a job that computers do at this point. <laughs> And, and you need some really sophisticated DNA sequencing technology in order to, you know, sequence a million different markers um, in a bunch of people. But luckily, they've, they've come up with some ways to do it fairly easily and cheaply. Although it's probably fair to say that they're not working with thousands of vampire DNA. Yeah, and so that's, that's one of the things that, you know, this, my science brain as I'm watching this, I'm like... I don't know if they could, like, really come up with good, a good, like, map of markers and different traits based on digging up graves for, like, a hundred witches or something. Like, that's a lot of work, and you probably don't have the statistical power to really do that. And, you Mm -hmm. know, the historical records of what powers different witches had would probably not be super accurate, so that would make it even harder. But the, the general principle definitely makes sense. It's just that they probably don't quite have the sample sizes for number of people that they would need to do that. That's actually an interesting point. It hadn't occurred to me to wonder how they knew all of the markers that, for example, Ben 
was Ben Van Gouda. Yeah. Is, is that what it was? Yeah. The one that had all of the markers from way back when? Mm-hmm. Like, how did they know what those markers were if those are markers for mutations that aren't being passed to witches today? Yeah. So the, in the in the show, they said that they basically just used historical records of what powers they had. I feel like witches wouldn't want to be sharing those records well, yeah. with vampires. <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, yeah, witches probably wouldn't want to be sharing those records. But also, you need not just a big group of people overall, but you kind of want an equal sample size of people who have the thing and people who don't have the thing. So you would want, you know, like... 2,000 witches that have witch water and 2,000 witches that don't have witch water. Right, which is probably impossible. Right, because there aren't that many witches even to begin with. Yeah. Hmm. Science. I know. I'm sorry. I really don't want to be ruining this experience for you. It's just so hard to turn my brain off. No, I totally get it. This is why we have a science segment. Yeah, and that's, you know going a little bit far afield, but that's one of the reasons why Orphan Black holds such a special place in my heart is because it's the one show that I can watch and my science brain the whole time is just like, oh my god, this actually works. This totally makes sense. That's totally believable. Um, It's like the best representation of science on TV that I think I've ever seen. Oh, good to know. Yeah, so do you guys have any more questions about that? Or do you think... All my questions are super spoilery, so we'll get to them in season two and three. Okay, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I guess we didn't learn too much more about the science behind the main plot this week. Uh, We got a little bit hint about vampires as a species, since Miriam is looking for markers related to vampire traits in Marcus's DNA. Um, But it wasn't clear if she was looking at his human DNA or potentially vampire DNA, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, what happens uh, in the future. All right. Uh, Well, before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you want to say about the episode in general? This was a pretty good one. Yeah, um, it was really fun. I guess my favorite part of the episode was just the confrontation between Diana and Isabeau at the end. I thought it was so good. They're both just like such strong female characters. And I don't mean that in like, the stupid stereotypical way but like um they both have like really strong wills and so i guess it was fun to see them sort of like come up against each other and then the moment where diana finally wins is about over um it was so good i agree yeah i think this episode definitely has some diana and isabeau gushing in it awesome well i can't wait to hear it later cool well thanks for stopping by my lab and i'll see you guys next week So I'm really glad that we have Anya on to talk about the science because, yeah, I really want to talk about how much I love Miriam's outfit. And if Anya hadn't talked about science, we wouldn't get any of it at all. But Miriam's outfit here is amazing. She is wearing this wonderful black t-shirt that has the word rebel and some wonderful design that I didn't get to see all of it. But she's got this like triangular boob window cut out of it. Mm -hmm. And she's wearing it underneath like a blazer style jacket. And it's just so like badass and professional at the same time. I like this idea that Miriam's outfits are basically, I don't care. Yeah, she knows she looks fabulous and that's all she cares about. Yeah. It's it's wonderful and I adore it. And then we get Baldwin calling Marcus. And I love this because it's the first time we've really seen 
especially to Claremont vampires or people who know Matthew making decisions and acting on the plot without Matthew involved. Mm -hmm. And I loved the dynamics that are revealed. And like we learned that Baldwin is the head of the family and that Marcus, despite being Matthew's son is still answerable to him. And, but you can also tell that Marcus feels more loyalty towards Matthew. Yeah. Baldwin has to pull the, I'm the head of the family card to get Marcus to tell him the truth. Marcus is trying so hard to to stand up for Matthew, and it just doesn't work. You definitely get the feeling that Baldwin has to pull the I'm the head of the family card a lot with these people. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's absolutely true. I like their dynamic, and I like that uh, Marcus doesn't want to... Marcus is reluctant to share with Baldwin, but at the same time, you kind of get the feeling that they are family and they are ultimately on the same side. And I think it's things like that that really endear me to show Baldwin. Okay, that makes sense. I think Baldwin is sort of, if you give me the information, I can do my best to help Matthew. Maybe. Maybe I'm making that up. I'm impartial at this point, I think. Okay. So let's go to horseback riding. I know nothing about horses, except that they are very pretty and very large. And I presume could kill me if they wanted. Yeah, one of the horses was white and one of the horses was black. Heareth endeth the extent of my horse knowledge. (laughs) I guess just before that, we do hear uh, Isabeau and Mart, who we haven't really talked about, who is great. And I love I love her casting. She's fabulous. Uh, We hear we hear them discussing Diana and how they can definitely see that Matthew is. I think Isabeau says she's bewitched him. Mm -hmm. And that's good. And you can definitely see that Mart can feel her power. And sense, you know, that she's different. And they have a nice little gossip session about Diana. Well, that's interesting, because I I didn't view it as a gossip session so much as this is another instance of Isabeau utterly demonstrating her disapproval of Diana. Well, yeah. But they're also, like, discussing how she feels different than any other witch that they've come across in a really long time. Yeah, that's true. And then we get the scene where they're riding the horses and we get the um, uh, a musical theme that plays there that is heard throughout this episode, sort of during intense emotional moments between Diana and Matthew. I think I really like this scene because this is where we get a moment of just pure genuine fun for Diana. She's happy here and it's delightful to watch. It is. I think I sometimes find television or movies where... You know, you're just looking at people smiling, a little awkward, but okay. you can tell that they're having a good time. Yeah, I thought even both of them had genuine smiles on their faces, and because and, I imagine filming that scene was just fun, and that was able to come through. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, it was, it was good. But it's short-lived, because we immediately cut back to the congregation. And then get Peter Knox saying, as you can see, he's stalking her, and everybody's phone dings. What, what did he send them? What, what proof? What did, it was, was he stalking, Matthew stalking Dinah and took pictures? Like what, I want to know what he sent there. I kind of want to know as well. Is it, was it just like a word document? Matthew Claremont is stalking Diana Bishop. (laughs) Jillian Chamberlain says, Matthew Claremont is stalking Diana Bishop. (laughs) 
<laughs> Here, I set my witch lackey to stalk the man stalking the witch so that we could have proof of the stalk. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Why did they even have that? Why not just skip that? Right? Yeah, no, it absolutely does not make any sense. <laughs> but then uh, they're sort of discussing it all, and we learn that you know, Philippe helped set up the congregation. And I think this is where we learn that Baldwin is sort of the head of the congregation. We certainly saw him, like, start the meeting in a mm-hmm. previous scene. Yeah. And someone, I can't remember who, it was Agatha maybe or Baldwin. I think it was Agatha who asked why this witch, why Diana. Um, and they want to know if she's powerful. And so Satu just jumps in and is like, nope, she was tested. She was shown not to have any power. And Peter very clearly looks uncomfortable at this line of questioning and changes the subject. Mm -hmm. God, I hate Peter. I hate Peter. He's so smarmy. And um, because of his conversation with Marcus, Baldwin is immediately able to undermine Peter's sneakiness and say and tell everybody that Diana is uh, has access to the Book of Life. And you can immediately see that Peter is like, oh, shit. And... Mm -hmm. And this, like, throws the whole thing into chaos. And, like, this stuff like this is why I enjoy Show Baldwin so much. I, I don't like him in the book really at all, but maybe it's the actor. I don't know. I really love him in the show. He's so Welsh, too. Like, it's so great. <laughs> okay. He's, like, his accent is the most Welsh accent I've ever heard. Not really, but I love it. Okay. And then, after... Baldwin does his Baldwin-y things that you enjoy so much. Yes. We go to a pretty tough scene where Matthew tells Diana what he found in the photographs and that it was actually witches who killed her parents and not humans, as she had always been told. Mm-hmm. And, and this conversation comes because Diana has offered to leave Sator because she knows that she's causing Isabeau distress because witches killed Philippe. Therefore, having a witch in the house is tough. And so... Matthew says, you can't go anywhere. You're not safe with the witches because the witches killed your parents. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a tough scene to watch, but it's good because you just get to see this absolute kindness from Diana. She she genuinely cares about Isabeau's well-being, having barely known her and only gotten like ice from her mm-hmm. just because... One, she's Matthew's mother, so obviously she cares about her. And two, she's just a good person. Yeah. I like getting to see this. Yeah, it was a good scene. And I also liked how at the end, like, Diana doesn't say anything. She just walks away, and Matthew just lets her, doesn't Mm -hmm. say anything, doesn't go after her, just lets her walk away. Yeah. And in a lot of shows, he would have gone after her. Yeah. They, They are definitely showing us that Diana is a deeply independent woman, and I like that. Yeah. I like it, too. And then we're back at the Congregation Island, although they're not in session or whatever. We're in the witch's archives. And Knox is a despicable shithole. And I hate him. And I don't I don't like Satu at all, but I never want him to come near her or touch her again. Right. And it's gross. And oh my god, at the end when he like rubs his hands on her face. Ew. No, 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 no. Oh, oh, oh. I hate Knox. I hate him so much. Yeah, I, I want to know what this device is that he uses to control his magic over her. Mm-hmm. Um, because initially, it just it makes the sound that like is clearly causing her pain and, and makes her like paralyzed essentially. Mm-hmm. And then he just like f- physically assaults her and throws her against the table. She's crying, 
and he is just awful. But then he he does what abusers do, and he turns on that, well, this is your fault, and I wouldn't have to do this if you would just do what you're supposed to do. And he says, we can only protect ourselves against humans and other creatures if we work together. And then he walks away. Oh, he is the worst. Especially since what he means is you have to do what I tell you to do. Right. Because he he very specifically says, I didn't bring you here to find your own information and use it against me. Like, what? An asshole. She should burn him and bury him in the ground. I mean, she clearly has more power than he does. At least that's what we've seen so far. Yes. Like, physically, she can do more than he can. We haven't really seen him use power. This is, we've seen him force himself into Diana's head. We saw the scene with him hurting Sean. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And in this scene, when he hurt Satu, he had to have the, the focus in his hand to do it. So why does she let him do this? Is it just fear because he's older and theoretically more powerful? Well, to be fair, they're on the island right now, so she can't kill him, like, literally at the congregation. Self-defense, man. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I do think this is interesting because we haven't really gone into it in the show at all. But I think it kind of showcases that Peter Knox is good at casting spells, while Satu and uh, Satu is good at magic, which the book does demonstrate a difference between. Like, casting spells is saying the words and doing a thing and blah, 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 while just having, like, innate magic and have that come out of you is is different. And and that you have, like, certain things that you can do and certain things that you can't. Right. Whilst anybody can sort of at least try to do spells. Mm-hmm. So I think even throughout, we've seen that Peter is generally better at spells. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And while Satu is better, or at the very least, we've seen her do more innate magic than we have seen Peter do. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and then we have uh, Agatha calling Sophie and Nat because she has begun to suspect that Diana Bishop is important. And we learn, I think this is when we learn that Sophie's had visions about Diana. Yes. And that looking this up, apparently some demons do have visions and they are called Moonkist, which is the most like 12-year-old fan fiction title ever but that's fine i like it did they use the phrase moon kissed in this scene no no i I looked this up oh okay um they just talked about uh or sophie just mentioned her her visions that she's had of um a witch in a castle with seven towers and that there's a dark man with her yes who she can't see as clearly right so she says she can see the woman's face but not the man's Mm mm-hmm and I've definitely had more than one friend be like, this is the scene where I figured out that Setters means seven towers, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> I don't know that I figured that out. So yay me. <laughs> well, I'm going to guess that maybe just because we went to school in different countries, you didn't necessarily have like 10 years of French class the way everybody I know did. Probably. I took a little bit of Spanish, but not much. So Yes, while well, here we are mandated to learn some French. Okay, that makes sense. Makes perfect <laughs> sense. And so that's just interesting to know that demons have visions. And, um, and Sophie figures out that Agatha knows who the person she needs to give her statue is 
Although Agatha refuses to tell her who, because she doesn't want Sophie to get caught up in all this craziness. Yeah. But then we cut to the most useless 30 second, probably not even 30 second scene ever, but it's still an amazing scene. And I'm glad it's there, even though it serves no purpose. Well, I mean, I guess the purpose is to see Diana working through learning that it was witches who killed her parents. I mean, she's just in a bathtub. That's it. She's not doing anything or saying anything. She's just in a bathtub. She's thinking. I don't know. It's a fabulous bathtub. And it's I a it. fabulous bathtub. That's all I get out of this yeah. like quick little scene is, I need that bathtub in my house. I don't know where I would put it, but I also need it. Oh, yeah. Neither of my bathrooms is large enough for, for that bathtub, but I'll figure it out. Maybe I can put a bathtub in my dining room. Yeah. I don't know. It's great. I want it. And then we have Matthew and Isabeau talking. And, like, I'm not going to dwell on it, but the t-shirt is still tucked into the jeans. Well, he hasn't it's, changed. I know. The same it's, day. He could put on a sweater, okay? <laughs> okay. <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. And I like this scene because I think at the end, they're talking about Diana, and he tells uh, Isabeau that about how witches killed her parents and that he just told her that and... Blah, blah, blah. And I think he says something like, I like her because she reminds me of you and your strength. And at the end, he says something like, I wish you would just try. Mm -hmm. And it's so cute because he wants his mom to like Diana. Yeah. Oh, Just like us regular folk. Matthew's just very cute in this episode with his mom, and I like it a lot. Yeah. But then we cut from cuteness to Gerber. Ugh. <laughs> I can't even really put my finger on it. Every single thing he says to Baldwin in this scene makes me want to claw his eyeballs out. I think it's just because he's arrogant and smarmy and just, like, greasy. Yeah. And I guess arrogance is a good way of putting it. And he just, his whole way of thinking that vampires are superior to everyone else. I hate it. Yeah. Although Baldwin is also putting out some arrogant vibes, I think it's utterly hilarious that he believes that he has Matthew under control. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Gerber was equally amused by that. It's like, are you sure? Really? I think Baldwin wants to have Matthew under control, but mm -hmm. I don't think it's ever going to happen for him. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody can control Matthew, except for Matthew. And then we come to what I think might be my favorite conversation in the whole episode when Diana and Isabeau finally are alone together. Mm -hmm. So Diana, you know, takes it upon herself to come talk to Isabeau at this point. And Isabeau is just so completely angry and on the offensive. She hates witches. She doesn't want Diana there. And Diana is having none of it. She just flat out asks how Philippe died. I mean, she knows witches did it, but now she wants Isabeau to tell her. Mm -hmm. And Isabeau is like, how dare you come in here and ask me this? And uh, Diana's like, well, I'm going to call you on all of this shit because there is good and evil in every species. She says, my parents were the best and I'm a witch who's willing to make up my own mind despite the stories I've heard about you. Very yeah. pointed, very much. I'm not like you because I'm giving you a chance even though you're a freaking witch killer. And God damn, I love her. It's really good. And almost immediately you can see Isabeau not necessarily warm to her, but like this is a big turning point for them. It is a big turning point. Isabeau even shows some vulnerability. Mm-hmm to diana and we haven't even actually seen much vulnerability 
in Isabeau yet, except when she was clearly in pain and didn't want Diana to go into Philippe's office. So here, as Diana's leaving, she tells her, whoever did it, make them pay. It doesn't take the pain away, but it helps. And it's, the whole exchange is just so good. Yeah. I also just like that because it's not the usual sentiment we get in fiction. Right. So I like how she's just like, yeah, just just kill them. Just kill them. Usually it would be killing them isn't going to change anything. It's only going to make you a murderer. Yeah. And here we get, nope, go kill them. You'll feel a little better. (laughs) I like it. And then we switch to fancy dinner. And, well, A, Matthew's in a very nice suit. And they've done his hair differently. And he doesn't have that weird, like, poof at the front that they always give him. And he just looks so much better. I hate that poof. But whatever. I've never noticed a poof in Matthew's hair. You will now. I probably will now. And I will curse you every time (laughs) I do. It's like they've combed back his bangs in, like, a curve at the front. But here they've got it just like a straight part down the side so it's flat. Mm-hmm. And I like okay. it. Anyways, I don't know why I'm getting so into this, but the poof bothers me. Okay. More importantly in this scene, everybody's grabbing their wine glass by the glass and not the stem. And I guess for vampires, it doesn't matter because they don't really have the same body temperature that humans do. But you're not supposed to do that. And if they were proper wine snobs, they would grab it by the stem. <laughs> I love that this is the thing that gets you caught up on it. I know every t- this has happened in every episode that Matthew has drank wine, grabs it by the glass. I'm like, no, the stem, the stem. I would be kicked out of a family dinner if I did that. Oh, wow. Okay. Not really, but my some of my family are big wine snobs. So right. It just bothers me. Anyways, then we move on to after dinner dancing. Oh, wait, we didn't say the best, well, a very good line in this episode when they're talking about the horses and Isabeau says that she likes them to be biddable and then or what she said she said she's comes to appreciate that in horses with her older age and Matthew's just like hmm and in sons right yeah it's good and then we go to after dinner dancing and it's adorable when he asks his mom to dance and I love it it is. I really like seeing Matthew and Isabeau dance mm-hmm. because this is really the first time that we see her being warm. You know, she's been so cold in every scene, even when it's just been her and Matthew because of the topic of their conversation. She's been very standoffish mm-hmm. and she just relaxes here and we just get to see them enjoying each other as family does. And I like it a lot. It is. It's really good. And everyone's having, everyone just seems so relaxed and finally kind of Having, like, a good dynamic between the four of them. Right. There's suddenly not a lot of awkwardness here. hmm And then Matthew dances with Diana afterwards, which is just one of those typical scenes where they're like, oh, no, I can't dance. I can't dance. But then suddenly... Perfect tango? Yeah. Perfect tango. And... Like, what? <laughs> adding in flourishes and... Right? Like, even if you manage to get your feet to do what they were supposed to do, because Matthew's a really excellent leader, you're still not going to do all of the things that she did with her hands. Yeah. Like, if you can't dance, you can't dance. It just doesn't happen. I speak from a lot of personal experience. Cannot dance. Can't do fancy things. Agree. 100% here. And Matthew's tie, like, disappears and then reappears. And I find that to be very distracting. I didn't notice because I was too busy being frustrated about the tango. He takes it off at the beginning of the dance, but then sometimes he has it. There was big speculation online about how maybe they were trying to hint towards something that happens later Mm -hmm. in this scene. 
but actually it's just bad editing. Yeah. Yeah. I, in this watch, I was watching very carefully Mm -hmm. to see if there was any hint of foreshadowing to future episodes. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I could not find one. You know, me neither. Okay. And then while they're having a good time dancing, Diana starts to glow. Yep. And I thought it was not great special effects. And it was just weird. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. Because I honestly cannot remember from the books. What is this that is happening to her? We know, I guess even in in the show, we don't know that this is Witchlight, but from the books we do. Mm -hmm. What does it do? I mean, we know, we've seen her do Witch Wind. Witch Wind is protective. But Witch Light is just pretty glow? In the book, it happened while she was sleeping and was just like the extent of her power seeping out of her. Because it happened earlier in the book while she was still very much like, no, 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 no to magic. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I feel like it was just kind of overflowing out of her because she has so much of it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in this scene, I... No, this scene makes no sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. Perfect. this scene in the book they were like they weren't tangoing i think they were just sort of slow dancing and she started to float right and that was how her magic sort of acted up there but i guess they didn't want to go that way i don't know so they went for this poorly done special effect that because i guess the actors didn't know what it was going to look like they overacted it and it, it it just it's an awkward scene i will agree with that definitely is awkward and it's weird. It doesn't make a ton of sense. No. Okay. I feel like they could have done like a a Stardust type of thing from the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that would have... That's what I pictured in my head. Yeah, I feel like that's what they were going for. They just didn't get it. Yeah. But it does lead to happiness, and happiness between Diana and Matthew leads to smooshies. Yes. They go for a nice walk by themselves. Have a nice kiss out. I just combined make out and kissing. I don't know what happened there. Let's say that sentence again. Oh, no, that's going to stay in. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> then Matthew grabs her butt again, because now you'll always notice it that I've pointed it out. Oh, I absolutely noticed it this time. <laughs> I did. That was in my notes. I was like, he totally just grabbed her butt. And um, we have that nice song play again that originally played during the horse riding scene and will come up one more time in this episode. And it's really nice. And then we go back to... Oh, no, then we're back in Oxford. I'm so confused with this Peter Knox note that I left there. Yeah, it took me a few minutes to figure out what you were talking about there, too, because Peter Knox is not actually in the scene. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I'd had some wine last night. Uh, so then we're back in Oxford, and we see Jillian and Sylvia talking about Matthew and Diana and even just from, like, the things that they're saying, Peter Knox isn't there, but you can tell he's still manipulating them. Mm-hmm. And I just hate him so much. Yeah. I think for a Jillian scene, this is a good one because she's smiling and being friendly to people and she's not doing this weird, trembly, like, bitter, jealous thing that she's been doing mm-hmm. that every time we've seen her. But ugh, it's, still, it's just Jillian. And... um I think the most surprising thing about this scene, though, is that while Sylvia is talking to Jillian about all of these things about Diana and Matthew, Jillian does actually try to defend Diana. You know, she says, well, maybe she doesn't know. She doesn't know much about the congregation, mm-hmm. you know, and Sylvia's like, well, that's her own fault. She's willfully done this, blah, blah, blah. 
but to see Jillian try to defend her was a nice surprise, I think. Yeah, I I do think Jillian, or at least Jillian in the show, did at one point genuinely have friendship with, you know, for and with Diana. Yeah. But Peter Knox has manipulated it. Yeah, I don't think Jillian intended to betray her. I think that from the beginning, Jillian thought she was doing the right thing for her people. Yeah, you could see she was conflicted about it, though. Yeah, but she she swung way to the wrong side, especially when she accused Diana of using magic for gain. And I, yeah. I feel like she's irredeemable after that. It's like her trying to defend Diana here doesn't make me actually like her. Like, it doesn't redeem her from anything. But it's nice to see that she's not she's not evil. Yeah. I mean, Peter Knox is evil. Jillian is a victim of manipulation. And prejudice. Because she does still have her own. Right. Yeah. Uh, and prejudice. And, and her own God, jealousy. Yeah. Her own, I don't know, Im- imposter syndrome or something? I don't know. I don't know what it is either, but she's got a whole bunch of crap working on her. Yeah. Then we go back to set tours. And I love this conversation, too. With um, <laughs> Dan and Matthew talking about William Harvey, and they're just yeah. being such big nerds, and they're so happy, and they're smiling, and they're holding hands, and it's really cute. But then Domenico shows up and ruins everything. Yes, he does. He doesn't even care. Like, it's pretty ballsy. So I was trying to figure out, is Domenico, like, did Baldwin send Domenico, or did Domenico take it upon himself to go? I think Baldwin sent, because in the last scene, we saw him say something like, we will send a representative to set tours, and Matthew will present her to the congregation. Right. So it would have made a lot more sense if Domenico had said, Baldwin sent me to do this thing, instead of Domenico just showing up and being all blustery, and I've come for the witch. He does mention the congregation, though, doesn't he? He does. But it it doesn't come across as if the congregation is no i like hear, driving I, I hear what this you're saying. it comes across as this, as if domenico is doing this himself to gain favor with the congregation right rather than he's being sent by the congregation to do this thing and i feel like the scene would have gone much differently i mean the outcome still would have been the same matthew's never going to give her up but i feel like it could have gone a little bit differently if he had said baldwin sent me to do this Honestly, I think it would have been worse, but... Possibly. But but, I, but yeah, he should have been a little bit more like, hello, I'm here on official business. Yeah. But we also get him saying, it's not about the book, it's about her, when Matthew refuses to hand her over. And this is the second time someone has said this about Diana. Mm-hmm. And I really like that echoing, because it is for... It was said about her for two completely different reasons. And yeah. I, I don't know. I just like that echoing there. I thought it was good writing. I do think Matthew would be a terrible poker player yeah. because it's his reaction to Domenico's presence and the way he becomes so fiercely protective of Diana that causes Domenico to make this realization. Yeah. Like, because up until this point, they all believe this is just about the book. Yeah. Like, I mean, Peter Knox tries to spin it that Matthew is trying to set a war with the creatures, but then they find out it's about the book and they realize. And now Domenico has shown up and he thinks it's just about the book until Matthew just does what he does. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it's so much bigger and everybody is aware that it's so much bigger. Yeah. And he does say, you're breaking the covenant, which is the first that Diana hears about the covenant. Yeah. 
And then Matthew keeps trying to tell Diana to go back to the house, and Isabeau and Mart show up. Then I think Mart takes Diana back to the house eventually. She does. I think that's the moment that Isabeau recognizes that Matthew's about to lose his shit, and she tells Mart to take her away. Yeah, but I feel like it was a lot of bluster, and then, like, Matthew didn't actually do that much. You know, like, I get that he wanted to get Diana out of there if there was going to be vampire fighting, but then there, there just wasn't that much vampire fighting. I, I wish they had done, like, a little bit more damage, you know, that so that it would make sense for Matthew being like, no, get Diana out of here just in case we, like, destroy the building. Right, yeah. It was, I, it was yeah. probably budget concerns, not like they didn't want to, but I just wish they had. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to see something, like, that big, but definitely more more injury to Domenico. I mean, he wasn't even bleeding when he yeah. walked away. I mean, I know his leg got hurt, but he was still walking. Yeah. So I definitely agree with you that it was set up to be much larger than what it actually was. And it was a little disappointing. And then as he, like, stumbles away, uh, Domenico says, even de Claremonts can die. And this, I think, is just another thing that really sh- drives home how important the de Claremont family is within the world. Yeah. And then afterwards, Matthew and Isabeau talk about Diana and the Book of Life. And Matthew says something in Occitan, which Deborah confirmed, or Deborah Harkness confirmed on Twitter, was, um, he says, Limey, which means I love her. Mm-hmm. And Isabeau says, I can see that. Yep. <laughs> And yet, Isabeau still tries to tell him to give her up to the congregation. Does she not know her son at all? Yeah, but she makes a good point that she's, like, nobody knows how far it's going to go at this point. Yeah. And she says that, like, if he gives her up, they won't kill her. They will if he doesn't. Right. Yeah, so I, I see that as being, one, She's she wants Diana gone out of his life, and so she's taking advantage of that here. And she's mm-hmm. saying the things that she thinks would get him to do that, which is this is how you can get her to live because you love her. It might also be, like, I've never really thought about this before, but it might also be a vampire's skewed sense of time. You know, she might be like, give her up, you'll get her back afterwards. Not knowing how long they would keep her, what they would do to her, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. I hadn't really either until just now. And then we cut to Diana and Mart having a conversation about the covenant because Diana has just heard these words for the first time in her life. Mm -hmm. And we learn that the covenant was instituted a thousand years ago by the congregation to forbid interspecies relationships. And Diana asks what happens when it's broken. And Mart says, to my knowledge, it never has been broken, which I think pretty big. Yeah. And we, uh, she talks a little bit about the past and how at the time there were so many more creatures and them intermingling was just causing a lot of problems. So I, yeah, it had to do with power for sure. Which I just bring up to say, we can see why maybe at the time the covenant made sense. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. And then Matthew and Isabeau come back in and Matthew's just like, no, we're not going to break the covenant. And Diana's immediately like, what, you're just going to give in? And they start arguing. In front of his yeah. mother. Yeah, no, Diana is not here for this at all. Yeah, and Matthew sort of starts trying to be mean to put her off, and she's just immediately like, you're just trying to put me off. I I get it. Just stop, please. And then we get a call from Marcus saying that the lab is, or I assume it's from Marcus, I guess it could have been Miriam. 
whatever, somebody calls Matthew, about the lab being broken into, and he's like, I'm gonna leave, and Diana's gonna stay, even though Isabeau's like, she should go to her aunt, but then Matthew's like, nope, she's staying, guard her with your life, and Isabeau just is like, yep, fine, whatever. She's staying here. Stop making decisions for me. Guard her with your life. Yes, Matthew. Yeah, I think watching her defer to him here, mm-hmm. like that's all he has to say is guard her with your life. It's like an order and she immediately does what he says. And I'm still confused about vampire familial politics because at this point if baldwin is the head of the family baldwin is the head of the congregation yet isabeau is deferring to matthew what does it all mean yeah we don't really get the explanations in the tv show that we got in the book about the family dynamics i wonder if we're going to go more into that in season two maybe because it's in book two that we get more information i mean we see a little bit towards the end of the season mm-hmm. of, of some of the things that, that could be driving this. It's just, we know it because we've read the book. They don't yeah. explicitly state anything. And so I'm wondering, because we get more of, of that stuff in book two, if we'll see it more specifically in season two. Yeah. That was really cryptic for anybody who's listening and hasn't read the books. <laughs> And then, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and then as Matthew's leaving, Dan is like, no, we shouldn't be separate. And then just says, I love you. Yeah, and then she he, flat out says it. Oh, and she says, tell me how you feel. Forget the congregation. Forget the everything else. And he says, you know how I feel. And then he leaves. Yeah, he refuses to say it. He he won't say it. I don't know wh- <sighs> I don't know why. Like, he, he basically said it by, you know how I feel, but he mm-hmm. would not say the words, even though he had just said them to Isabeau. And it's just so frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking to watch Diana run after him and just stand there and cry and then cause a thunderstorm. Yeah. Um, I actually, okay, visually, I liked how they did this in the show, but I don't think it makes much sense for what it is. And I wish they'd kept it more how it was in the book. Yeah, I think it's unclear. That this is Witchwater. I mean, we we have Isabeau come out and say, my God, she's doing this. Mm-hmm. And so you are under the impression that this is some sort of magical rain. It's not just normal rain. In the book, I feel like we keep talking about book stuff and we're not even in the book section. But yeah. in the book, they set this up because when Matthew was studying her DNA and showing her the markers that she had, like with the the mitochondrial diagrams that we saw in the last episode, you know, he did that for Diana and her blood. And he shows her that she has the markers for which wind, which fire, and which water. So they're mm-hmm. all mentioned there. We're not told what they are, but it's foreshadowed. And now we've seen her do which wind in the show. And now we're seeing this water, but we didn't have that set up to kind of tie it together. And I wish we had had something to at least, you know, just say the words at some point rather than just having it appear. They I might be in the next episode. Right. I mean, I mean I'm sure it will. Oh, okay. But even just, just leading up to it, though, I feel like I wish they had told us up front that these are things that 
I mean, we know nobody's seen which wind in centuries. Like, we, we've heard that already. But just having the conversation that sets it up that we know that Diana has these markers when he's specifically looking at creature markers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just just it, it feels like the story is incomplete and we're not getting a full picture from the show at this point. And I liked it better in the book because, like, it's very clear that Diana can't control it. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more similar to how we got the witch wind scene because she sort of she's overwhelmed with sadness and then can't stop the water from leaking out of her and it never it doesn't stop and it's almost like going to drown her mm-hmm. and i i like that better because it shows how she's not really controlling it and how it's dangerous and it i w- like they were obviously going for the emotional beat in this scene right and so i and, and visually it looks great i just personally preferred the more dangerous plotty aspect i suppose of how it yeah. played out in the book and how we we then get to see isabeau safer and it's a good moment between the two of them right but the scene they wanted to keep the focus on diana and matthew and i understand that and they do have the sort of culmination of the romantic song that's been playing throughout the episode play here and this is where it it is on the on the soundtrack called separation brings the witch water so i guess from that we know it's witch water Right. But so it is a very nice scene and I like I like the scene in and of itself. I just I liked how it played out better in the book. Yeah. I get that. So now that we've come to the end of the episode, what were your favorites? I really liked their their real good kiss. Mm-hmm. It was cute. And Matthew says, What spell have you put on me? And that's good. And like I mentioned, they're adorable talking about William Harvey and history and just being so nerdy and cute and nerds and love are my favorite so i loved that scene (laughs) it's a good scene for sure i actually don't think i can narrow it down because i think this is my favorite episode so far Ah. this is the episode that sets up diana as this fiercely compassionate passionate person and i just absolutely love her to pieces for it yeah yeah it's it's a good diana episode it's a good character episode yeah yeah it's it just it makes me happy and it makes me love her so much. I feel like we're finally getting to a point where like the whole episode isn't disguised exposition. Yeah, we are definitely moving further along in the plot. Yeah. So I like that about it too. Shall we move into our spoilers? All right. If you have not yet read the books or watched all of the episodes in season one, please proceed at your own risk. In this section, we are going to talk about things that may or may not have yet appeared in the show or never do at all. And we are definitely going to talk some more about the books. So please turn us off now if you don't want to be spoiled and we will see you next week. Okay, so I have a really big problem with the implication that Philippe set up the covenant or that it was his idea. Like, he was definitely there when it was set up and let it happen, but it was not his idea. And I I always got the feeling that it was more something that he sort of gave some ground on because he had all these other demands when the congregation was set up. But mm-hmm. he would never have agreed to, like, he would never have been like, yeah, witches and vampires shouldn't make out. Because like, he he's the one who discovered that they could have kids. He's the one who tracked it down. He wanted this to happen. He... He's so old, he remembers other beings and other creatures that used to be on the planet. He is all about letting everybody intermingle. Right. I mean, he definitely did agree to it. He he let it happen. But am I misremembering? Did he allow it to happen on the condition that a declaremont must always be on the congregation? 
Was that one of his demands? That is one of his demands. I don't know if it was like that's why he let the covenant happen. I, I don't know. But I do know that he was fully aware that witches and vampires could have kids and was interested in that and wanted to learn more. So I don't think he would have. It certainly wouldn't wouldn't have been his idea because yeah. this is not what he was going for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm curious then what's going to happen, like how for them to say it like that, to change that makes me think that they did it for a reason, that it's going to come up again. And so I'm curious what else they may have changed. Yeah. Unless it's just a horrible continuity era that it's going to be ignored when we actually do meet Philippe next season. Maybe. I mean, he does he does have some like prejudices against Diana for a bit. But I never got the feeling that was because she was a witch so much as it was because she was this unknown witch who came out of nowhere and was suddenly, like, ingrained in their lives. Right. And, you know, he gets over it as soon as she, A, kills a dude, and B, he finds out that Isabeau approves of her. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And one of the other things that I thought they set up really well here that I've kind of alluded to is the dynamic between Baldwin and Matthew. Because I've always had the feeling that, like, Baldwin is actually Philippe's son, but I'm pretty sure Matthew is Philippe's favorite. Mm-hmm. So I like that dynamic between them, because I'm sure everybody knows that Matthew's Philippe's favorite, too. Yeah. And that's how I think of Baldwin as being this, like, kind of, like, the older son who knows he's not as appreciated as the younger son, who's also right. a bit of a fuck-up. So he's just like, Why? yeah baldwin's the head of the family because he's the oldest male right i think so and also because he is philippe's direct child not one of isabeau's right yeah okay so much with vampire politics in this show yeah the declaremonts are large and sprawling and crazy yeah and people are jealous about it yeah even declaremonts so (laughs) uh I can't wait till we meet Philippe in season two. Oh, I can't wait either. It's going to be wonderful. Although that's an interesting point with how the age that they cast Isabeau. Do you think they would cast Philippe like a complimentary age or do you think they'll just do whatever? Because it'd be interesting if Philippe looked younger. I fully expect it to be a complimentary age because I think that's how they would have cast him anyway. Even if they had cast Isabeau as someone in her 30s. Yeah. They still would have cast Philippe as a man in his 50s or 60s. I, yeah. I truly believe that. And and so I I can't imagine it being any other way. I guess. I just, that's not at all how I picture Philippe either. I, I get that it's really difficult to do in mm-hmm. reality or whatever. But I just wish that they could find somebody who was, you know, 30-ish, but somehow make him seem older without looking older like that's how i picture philippe yeah actually 30s a bit young i don't know philippe is so hard because he is probably the oldest vampire we meet mm-hmm. and has well i mean I'll, I'll wait to talk about who and what philippe actually is but i don't know i'm i'm very interested to see who they cast him as and how that all works yeah season two is gonna be interesting it's gonna be great it's gonna be interesting yeah uh I love Philippe. Okay. I think that's it. I think that's it.
Okay, so we'd love to know what you think of Matthew and Diana so far. Use hashtag DesireMadeReal to join our conversation on Twitter. I'm Caitlin, and you can find my other show at acommandofyourown.com, or on Twitter, I'm at InferiorCaitlin. And I'm Andy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. You can find the show on Twitter at DesireMadeReal, or you can send an email to DesireMadeRealPod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Mandy K. Join us next week as we talk about episode five, where we learn more about Matthew's past. Until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning.